morning, everybody. So today we uh, finish our uh, first unit in systematic theology. Uh, this is Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's got seven big chunks of information. Uh, today is the review of the doctrine of the Word of God. So I'm going to go over everything that we've learned the last eight weeks and kind of package it up and see if this uh, we can put a bow on top and set systematic theology aside for maybe five or six months, and then we'll come back to it for unit number two. Um, so if you've got your, uh, uh, your Bibles, we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, but first is our scripture memory passage review. So if you know uh, Psalm 119.1, look, I didn't even have to wait for him to stand. Wait, I didn't even have to ask to stand up. He just stood right up. You know Psalm 119.1, you can go ahead and stand up now. Now this is, this is as short a verse as we've got in the whole thing, okay? And in, if you didn't memorize it, it's actually on the back side of the handout at the very bottom because it's the review from last week. Um, so <clears throat> you can do it probably fairly quickly. Um, so I'll give anybody else a chance. I got I loaded up this week because I figured there'd be a whole bunch of folks since it was so incredibly short. It doesn't flow. It's like fifteen words. Anybody else? Going once, going twice. All right, Stephen. Let's start with you this morning. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. That's it. Very good. Miss Amy V. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the way of the Lord. There you go. Mr. Barber. Blessed are the undefiled who walk in the way who walk in the way of the Lord. There you go. I like it. Miss Kristen. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Very good. Very good. And Miss Abby. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. That's right. Very good. Good job, everybody. Well done. All right, so let's go back to week one, the introduction to systematic theology. And the introduction was really more uh, than just the first unit. It was more than the doctrine of the Word of God. It's the introduction to the entire concept of systematic theology, uh, where we answered the question, what's systematic theology, why should Christians study it, and how should we study it? And Grudem defines systematic theology as any study that answers the question, and here's your first blank, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? So as opposed to looking, remember I brought in the Lego sets. Uh, that's, that's the example blank there, the Lego sets versus the pieces. We brought in the Lego sets. We had them all stretched out on the long tables. And we talked about if you look long ways down the table at what the Bible says about one concept all the way through the Scripture, that's what systematic theology is. If you look sideways across the table... That's more of an expositional type approach. That's a, here's a specific text. What does this one text say about whatever topic it speaks about? It speaks about? Uh, so two very good ways of looking at things. I think there's a healthy balance of looking at both. You want to make sure that we've got the, the bigger perspectives and themes and concepts in the Scriptures down pat. At the same time, we want to make sure we dig into individual components of Scripture, uh, which is one of the reasons that it, for this class... Uh, that I like to go back and forth between big concepts and specific pieces of Scripture, and big concepts and specific pieces of Scripture. So after Easter, we're going to do about five weeks of things God cannot do. Now, we tell our kids all the time that God can do anything, and honestly, that's a lie, because He really can't. There's some things that He limits Himself to. So we're going to look at very specific Bible passages that, that God says, these are things that I don't do. 
or won't do or can't do, that I limit myself to these other things and why that's good for us. And then we're going to look at verse by verse through the book of Titus. And that would be an example from my perspective of not looking down the table long ways, but looking at the table sideways at a very specific piece of Scripture and digging very deeply. This is, you know, word by word, verse by verse, to make sure that we understand what does the Bible say in this text. But systematic theology is the longer, larger view of things. What does the Bible say about the whole topic, this whole concept, this whole idea throughout the scriptures. So that's systematic theology. If you missed any of the last few weeks, that's the big picture. So why should we study systematic theology? Uh, well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, the, one of the first questions I asked in this series was if you were the last Christian on earth and it was your job to disciple someone, where would you start? What would you do? What would you teach? And it's kind of a daunting question, right? I mean, if you so here's somebody that doesn't know anything about God, doesn't know anything about the Bible. What do you do? Hmm. Well, you could start in Genesis 1 and just read through and get somebody familiar. And in a few months, you would have covered the whole Scripture. But is that the best way to communicate the big theme so that things make sense as they go through? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe there's a more efficient way. And systematic theology really is an attempt to be very efficient at how we communicate some of these very large themes about God and the Scripture and what He wants us to know uh, quickly. Uh, two, uh, it confronts sin in our lives. And a lot of this is not going to be in your notes because uh, you've got two pages and I didn't want to give you a 27-page summary handout because that kind of looks weird. Uh, Gary gets aggravated at me enough that I print as much as I do, so it's, we'll, we'll limit it to this number of pages. So, um, so the, the first is to fulfill the Great Commission and the teaching aspect of that. And two is to confront sin in our lives. Because one of the things that is hard to do, it is hard to ignore persistent themes in the Scriptures, right? If I read one verse of the Bible and it says this particular thing is wrong, okay, all right, all right, all right I'll, I'll move along, it's fine. But if this theme comes up over and over and over and over again, it is, it is very difficult to ignore and to put that aside. And when we look at systematic theology, we look at things that come up over and over and over again. And in my mind, those are the things, especially those bigger themes, those are the things that I can hold on to very, very tightly because this is a concept that God has repeated and that He intentionally has said, this is worthy of saying more than once or more than twice or sometimes more than 30 or 40 or 50 times. And, and those are things that we can really, okay, these are some of God's big rocks that He has put in the jar that other things build around. Um, and then number three, Grudem says to be able to make better decisions later on new questions of doctrine that may arise. And there's always new philosophical or moral or spiritual challenges that come up every single day. Um, the Bible does not talk about every concept that we face from a very specific example every single day. Right? The Bible doesn't tell you what you should post on your Facebook profile. Right? The Bible gives some guidelines for communications, though. Right? Things that are wholesome, things that are appropriate, things that lift others up, things that are of good report, those types of things. But the Bible doesn't say, you shouldn't repost this. Right? So there are always going to be new examples and new opportunities for living life that the Bible can give us direction on. And systematic theology helps have a framework that we know how to approach decisions, very tactical decisions, because we've got the bigger 
uh, themes and, and ideas in place. Does this make sense? Yes? Okay, so that's chapter 1. And the memory passage was Psalm 119.11, Your word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. Which I think is just, if you haven't taught your kids this one, that's great. Um, this is a, just a fantastic one. This is how you stay right with God. So chapter 2 is the Word of God, uh, and look at the different forms of the Word of God. And there's really two big forms of the Word of God. One is the Word of God as a person. The Word of God himself is Jesus Christ. Um, and the whole Bible talks about Jesus. The whole Bible points to Jesus. It's all about him. Uh, and then there's the Word of God as speech by God, so the actual words that come out of God's mouth. So number one there is God's decrees, uh, and this is a word, that, a word of God that causes something to happen. A word of God that causes something to happen. So uh, on day one uh, of creation, what did God create? He said, let there be light. And here's my question. Did light have a vote? No. no. Light didn't get a vote. Light was told what to do. Light was told to come into being, and it did, and that occurred. And I love that light didn't get a vote. Because I... I have to spend a tremendous amount of effort for light not to get a vote because I have to build a house that has walls thick enough and windows blanked out and heavy curtains to protect and get all of light away, and yet God can just command light as if it's a thing that he can command because it is. Right? It's amazing. So the decrees of God, this is part of the word of God. This is where God causes something to happen. God says, this will occur, and it occurs. Uh, two is God's words of personal address, and this is when he communicates with people on earth by speaking directly to them. And a big chunk of the Bible is comprised of this, right? It's just, it's, it's kind of, I heard somebody say one time, the Bible is us eavesdropping on God's conversations with a whole bunch of other people. It's like, that's kind of close actually, right? I mean, this is just us listening in on him having these conversations with other people and what we can learn about him through this. Uh, so God talks to people directly. Uh, number three is God's words as speech through human lips. And this is a big chunk of specifically the prophets and, uh, and Jesus' words himself where, where God is talking through a human being to us. And I'm still convinced that God does this uh, today. Uh, this is when somebody comes up to you and says something and you go, wow, God really used that very specifically to help me through this thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just what he does, right? It's part of what he does. Uh, and then number four, God's words in written form. And, and this is what I like about the way Grudem describes things is that he takes a lot of these definitions and he really expands them to wrap around a larger set of information than just, if I think about the words of God, I think, well, that's the Bible, right? Well, this is part four of his definition, God's words in written form, the Bible. Um, but it's, it's not all of God's words because God spoke other things than what are recorded in the scriptures, um, you know, one of the Gospels at the very end, it says, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, the world itself couldn't contain the books. And you kind of get this idea that he was a really busy dude and that he did a lot of stuff and that it was really neat and that the guy writing that book really wanted to write some of that down, but that's not what the Holy Spirit caused him to remember. Um, so that was okay. That's, that's part of the way this works. So the Scripture memory passage for chapter 2 is Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So this idea that if I'm going to walk rightly with my God, the Word of God is an integral component of that. This is not, you cannot separate a right relationship with God and the Word of God. 
Those two things must work together. And when we try to separate them, what we find is that we become very detached from the vine and we wither up, right? It just it does not work very well at all. So chapter 3, the canon of Scripture, and this may have been a new word for some of you. Uh, canon is just, uh, the canon of Scripture is a list of all the books that belong in the Bible. Looks of all the books that belong in the Bible. And we really started from those first five books of the Bible that, that really, I mean, honestly, there are very few people who would debate that those are Scripture. There's very, very few. Uh, one of my favorite authors, especially when I was in high school and college, was a guy named Isaac Asimov, a science fiction writer. Uh, and he, he was he's really world-renowned. He's, he's dead now. He was world-renowned for his ability to take incredibly complex concepts and write about them in a way that anybody could understand. Um, he taught me about uh, black holes when I was in the eighth grade. Cool. And I, I understood it well enough that I thought, you know, I, th- I think I get this. Now, I didn't understand it nearly as well as Stephen Hawking did when I read his book when I was in college. Um, but then at the end of the book, he had, I think he had 13 or 14 chapters in the book, and he said, if you can, if you can understand all, all of what I talk about all the way through the end of the book, you're ready to start your postdoctoral work in theoretical physics. And I felt pretty good about getting through chapter 7. So that was, that was good for me. Um, but the canon of Scripture is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. So if you think about, uh, go back to my Asimov. Asimov actually even said, I believe the first five books of the Bible are, were actually written by God. I think there's enough evidence that show that this is special and this is important. Uh, he didn't believe any of the other stuff. But even, even somebody that was a staunch, uh, really uh, probably agnostic is probably the closer um, definition for him. But there's just so much evidence for those first five. And then what we looked at during that lesson was how God himself added on. And God himself added on. He told more stories and he told others to write these things down. And then we have the development of the Old Testament that points toward Jesus Christ. And then we get to the New Testament. And uh, the New Testament talks about uh, all these stories about Jesus and what Jesus did when he came and what happened after Jesus left and what his followers did and how all this stuff relates to each other. And there were several different... There were several different passages. First uh, Timothy 5.18 was one. It says, uh, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And one of those is from the Old Testament, and one of those is from the New Testament. And this is where we start to build this case for God himself added to the words of the, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and he built the scriptures out. And he gave it to us at the time we were supposed to have it and the way that we're supposed to have it. And that's just the way this works. So that next blank under uh, chapter 3, the Old Testament and the New Testament both point exclusively to Jesus. There we go. It's all about Jesus. I got to do a sign language joke last week for the Easter at Coolidge egg stuffing party. I was very pleased with myself. Um, when, I say, when I say I'm very pleased with myself, that's Jim saying I was very prideful. Uh, it's the Christianese translation there. Uh, Marshall was, I caught Marshall eating candy, I think it was. Yeah, he was putting some in his pocket. And I was like, dude, I was like, dude. Yeah, it wouldn't fit. He he tried to put a lot of candy in his pocket. It was kind of funny. And I said, Jesus is crying. No. And and he about fell down laughing. He was laughing so hard. And I was like, yes. And I'm sure this means something else. It probably doesn't mean crying, but that's what I did. He, He got it, so it was good. All right, so the Old Testament and the New Testament both point exclusively to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. 
Uh, and, and this, to me, is one of those things where if you're struggling with Bible study, if you're struggling with a passage, if you're not sure how this fits in context, Jesus is in there. So focus on him, and he will help direct this understanding of this concept. Uh, the memory passage for that verse uh, for that week was Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God who at various times and in various ways, and if that ain't the understatement of the whole Bible, uh, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And it, there's a beautiful principle here that God never stops talking to his people. He is always communicating to his people. He is always reaching out to his people. Uh, just because the canon is closed does not mean God has stopped talking. It's two totally different things. Whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds. So this whole concept is all revolves around Jesus. The prophets were looking forward to Jesus. Jesus testified of himself and to the Father. And then the apostles testified backward about Jesus. And we're still pointing people back to Jesus. And next week when we get up on Easter morning and we say he is risen and the response is he is risen indeed, it's because... Jesus is still changing our lives 2,000 years later. It is still radically making an impact, and it's just it's an absolutely beautiful thing. So that's chapter 3. Chapter 4 is the four characteristics of Scripture. So he goes into four characteristics, and he takes a, a detour to talk about inerrancy one week. So really the, the question of authority is how do we know that the Bible is God's Word? And Grudem defines authority as the means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to believe, to disbelieve or disobey any Word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So this is, it carries the full force and effect of God's words himself, the authority of Scripture. And really, this is what the Bible claims for itself, right? I mean, this is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration to God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. So these are God's words. Um, and we're convinced of this as we read the Bible as well. The Holy Spirit works in us and through us to quicken it, to make it alive, to illuminate, to shine aspects uh, into our lives so that we can understand this. Um, the next blank there is, uh, Grudem says, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Which is basically the exact same blank as before, just a different word, because this is really important. We don't get to cherry pick. Uh, one of the best examples I ever heard about listening to a sermon is that a lot of people say that listening to a sermon or a teaching about the Bible is like going to a buffet. And people will say, yep, I'll take a little of that. Yep, I'll take a little of that. Yep, I'll oh, you know what? I don't like that. The, the, my, one of my favorite um, uh, salad bars, and I actually do like salad bars. It's the only, about the only way I'll eat a salad, isn't it? Kind of. I'm branching out. Yeah, I'm branching out. Um, She's been with me, so, so today's our anniversary. I don't know if you guys knew this or not. Um, today is the 5,000th day that we have been married. So, cool. Uh, so, we, 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 we count those anniversaries as well, so that works. Uh, any reason to celebrate, I'm all about it. So, so thanks for sticking around for 5,000 days. Hopefully, we'll get at least, I don't know, twenty-five or 30,000 more out of this. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I have no idea where I was going to go now. <laughs> Salad bar, yes. Thank you. So uh, where's my, it's right up the road. Where's my place I like to eat the salad bar? Ruby Tuesday, thank you, yes. Uh, they have a great salad bar. And for years and years, there was always this one section that I always avoided because I didn't, they, they put pasta, like this cold pasta. Why do you have cold pasta? What's cold pasta? Warm pasta is barely tolerable. But cold pasta? I mean, it's like, why would you put that on the salad bar? And then one day I tried it. 
and it was really good. I was like, you know, it's pretty good. And I remember when I, when I tried it and it was good, I thought, that's exactly what that guy told me one time about listening to a sermon, is that sometimes I'll say, I want a little of this, I want a little of this, I want a little of this, and I am ignoring, I am consciously saying, I don't want any of the thing that I could really, really use, the thing that I could really enjoy, the thing that God could use in my life to make some change to make me look more like Jesus Christ. But when you listen to a sermon, when you listen to the teaching, when you read the scripture, it is not as if we get to go, yeah, I'll take a little of this, I'll take a little of this, but I want to skip that part. Because to disobey any part of the scripture is to disobey God directly. And that's just the way it is. And as much, and I'll just I'll be real transparent, palms up, cards up on the table, as much as this aggravates the fool out of me sometimes when I read the Bible and I get just so convicted about something that God is dealing with me on, some sin in my life that why do you have to talk about that? Because I, I don't really care for you to talk about that. I'm just going to turn the page. And dad blame if he won't put it on the next page too. I'm just like, it's just good gracious. But that's what he does. He's a loving father and he's going to chase us down and he's going to make sure that we understand that he loves us and he's not going to let us get away with this stuff. Um, and it's good for us. So it's good for us. All right, so... Uh, Scripture memory passage for that is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration to God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So chapter 5, we kind of take a, a detour for just a second to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture because this is so under attack today. Uh, Grudem says the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. I love that definition. It's all true. And it's all true about everything. Um, and there's a couple, couple things to recognize about this, is that the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary language of everyday speech. Right? We talked about the sun rises and the sun sets. And if you look at things from a universal perspective, the sun does not rise and the sun does not set. Right? The earth is going around the sun. This is the way this is really happening. But from our perspective here on... I know, right? It's like this is a shocking concept. From our perspective here on the earth, that's what looks like happens. And that's true, right? That's okay. Uh, the Bible can still be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. Uh, one of the things that used to bug me as a kid, because I was brought up in a, uh, a plus B equals C kind of uh, theology, everything had to be ticked and tied out, and it was just uh, auditing almost the Bible to make sure everything was just perfect. And I'd read these quotes from Matthew, and I'd read these quotes from Luke, and I'd be like, that's really close, but they're not the same. So I'd put that in my little box of, I don't understand. I'll get back to that later. And Grudem really helped me understand that in New Testament times, if you communicated the main idea and you attributed it to the right person, and if they would have agreed with your summary, that was a good enough quotation. They didn't put quotation marks around everything like we do today. They weren't nearly as OCD about direct quotes. Now, don't confuse me. Don't, don't, don't confuse what I'm saying to say that the Bible doesn't have direct quotations. The Bible has tons of direct quotations, tons of direct quotations. But just because one uses a couple different words than another doesn't mean the Bible is not true. It's called free quotations or loose quotations. It's completely and totally acceptable in these time periods, and that's totally okay. All right? Um, and then uh, there can be uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. If you've ever read anything in the Bible and you went, yeah, my English teacher would not have been okay with that. Right? What was my blank, Dave? You remember my blank? Good grammar does not equal good theology. I had an error in the grammatical 
Yeah, I love it. It was fantastic. I was proud of myself on that one. So, um, so if we deny inerrancy, one of the things that, that I think is very helpful in studying the Scripture, uh, it was something that one of my math professors taught me in uh, my sophomore year in college. Uh, it's, it's proof by, um, by the opposite. So if I want to prove that something is true, I assume the opposite and prove that that's wrong. And sometimes that's a much easier thing to do. Sometimes it's easier to say, well, if gravity is true, well then, well, how do I prove that? Well, I, I can prove that it's not false, right? Well, sometimes that's easier. Um, so if I want to tr- prove that inerrancy is really important, well, what happens if inerrancy is not right? What, if, what happens if there are errors in the Bible? Well, we, there are some serious implications from that. One of them is um, that if God can lie in small things, then we can lie in small things. Well, that's bad, right? Um, one of them is, how do we know we can trust God with what He says, right? How do we know what parts of the Bible that we can really trust? And this is very popular right now. If you read modern theologians that do not adhere to an inerrant view of Scripture, what they will do is they will say, this, this verse is true and this next verse is not. And this, these six verses are true, and in these next two chapters, they are not true. I, I kid you not, I'm not making this up. And, and it, to me, it is the ultimate smack of pride and arrogance to be able to stand in judgment, literally, of the Scripture itself and say, this is true and this is not true. I mean, literally, what we're doing here is we're saying, I know more than God does about what God wrote. Rewind that one and play it back half a dozen times. I mean, this is just, this is dangerous, dangerous stuff. So if we assume inerrancy is wrong, that inerrancy is not true, the repercussions from this are life-threatening and damaging. Because how do we know that the Bible is not true in the bigger doctrines as well, right? How do we know that Jesus is God then? How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that Jesus paid the price for our sin and it's not something else is hanging out there that God just forgot to include, or that he worded it the wrong way and he's got us all mixed up and we don't know what we're talking about. I mean, these are real problems for us if inerrancy is not true. So the memory passage for uh, chapter 5 was Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So the second of the four characteristics of Scripture is clarity. Um, and it's really, can only Bible scholars understand the Bible? Because there's parts of the Bible that are just tough to understand, right? Everybody would agree with that? For years... I didn't read the book of Isaiah. It just aggravated me. I didn't get it. I'd read it and read it and read it and read it, and it was like, this is just, man, this, this dude is just weird. I mean, I just, I, I could understand Hosea better than this. You know, go chase after your woman and go buy her back, and that's awesome. At least there's some love in there, right? But Isaiah is just, he's a weird dude, man. And, and I would just ignore it because I, I just can't understand this. And then a couple months ago, I thought, you know what? This is ridiculous. This is, I, I'm ignoring a big chunk of God's Word. Let me just read through this. And I read it, and I was like, okay. This, is, this made a little more sense this time. Okay. Now, I'm not ready to go teach it verse by verse through Isaiah, but it's starting to make a little more sense. This is okay. Um, and one of the beautiful things that I, that I learned actually this past week, I was putting together all the verses that we're going to kind of select from for the things God can't do. There's a big chunk of stuff that God limits himself to in Isaiah. That he says, you know what? I'm not going to go do this crazy thing. I'm not going to go do this crazy thing. You're safe in my arms here. I'm making a promise to you, and I'm not going back on it here. And I'm like, wow, that's, I'd have missed that if I'd have just kept ignoring Isaiah. This is not would have been good. So the clarity, 
Uh, Grudem defines clarity of Scripture. It means the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to, willing to follow it. Which is great, right? This is great. Um, the Bible affirms its own clarity, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. If you haven't memorized these verses, please, please, please memorize these verses. And these words which I command you, and this is Moses talking to the whole nation of Israel, today shall be in your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your children, you shall talk of them when you write, sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Um, and this is all about Moses assumed that the Bible was clearly understandable enough for us to teach to our kids. And this is everybody. This is no exclusions. This is not, uh, yeah, that kid that graduated last in the class too. No, this is everybody. Okay? We can understand it. Uh, Psalm 19.7 is one of the most encouraging verses to me in all the Scripture, uh, especially from a, when, I'm, when I feel like I'm having a, an off day. You ever had a mentally off day? Um, I, I was sick week before last, did a lot of coughing, uh, coughed so much that last Friday, not this, not, not today's Sunday, not Saturday, not Friday, but the Friday before that, I actually herniated a disc in my back, which is why I'm sitting down this morning. So I appreciate you guys... Uh, accommodating me while I try not to spin too far in this chair that the bearings have way too much grease in them. Um, but the uh, Psalm 19.7 applied to me a lot this last week because I've been on hydrocodone. I don't know if you know anything about hydrocodone, but you do not think very clearly on hydrocodone. Um, what's that? Yeah, I hear you. She's talking about me. Yeah, yeah. There was something else, too, I was on, some cough medicine. Yeah, it had the same drowsy warning, don't drive kind of thing, too. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, I, was, I would do some reading, and I'd do some studying, and I'd try to log in and do some work from home, and, you know, the little XL lines are wiggling. And I'm going, I, I don't think I need to be doing something that's that important right now. I think I should give this a minute to wear off. But Psalm 19.7 kicks in. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And it's just that... We're all going to have simple days. That's just the reality, right? It may be a medication result. It may be because we just didn't get enough sleep. It may be because we're tired. It may be because we're worn out from beating the kids. I don't know what it is, but we're all going to have simple days. And the word of the Lord is good enough on the simple days as it is when we're as sharp as we get. And that's just encouraging, you know. It's just flat-out encouraging. Um, i got a question in here. Why would the authors of the Bible expect us to understand their words? Why would they expect that? The answer is because understanding Scripture is not about intelligence. It's about the Holy Spirit. My ability to comprehend Scripture has almost nothing to do with my intelligence. It really does. You know, even if I can't read, I can have somebody else read the Scriptures to me. You know, for hundreds of years, believers, the average believer didn't get to read the Bible because it wasn't available in their language. They'd go to a church service and they'd hear the Bible read in a language that they may or might not have even understood and they had to figure out what God wanted them to do by the paintings on the wall. You know, it's like, gee whiz. <laughs> Art's important at that point, right? Well, it's about the Holy Spirit. God can work through that too. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So that's chapter, uh, most of chapter 6. Sorry, I still got a couple bullets here. Uh, so why do people misunderstand Scripture? Well, we misunderstand Scripture because we're sinners and we mess things up. This is in our nature. This is what we do. Uh, if there's a problem with understanding Scripture, it's with ourselves. It's not because God wrote it poorly, right? 
I'm not going to get to heaven and go, you know, I could have really done a better job of this if you'd have been clearer in the way you wrote the scripture. Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't think so. That's not going to work. Um, so if we don't need scholars to understand the Bible, uh, at least on its fundamental level, what do we need scholars for? Well, sometimes people have a way of putting things into a specific phraseology or wording it in a certain way that helps us understand the Bible more clearly. Probably everybody in this room has somebody that they like to hear talk about the Scriptures, right? Hopefully you got somebody at least that you go, that's good. Now, the, the caution here is that we put somebody up on a pedestal and we say that somebody can't be wrong or somebody's always right. Or, I mean, that's just that's kind of crazy stuff. We, everybody's got holes in their theology. Gary's got holes in his theology. Brian's got holes in his theology. Daryl's got holes in his theology. I got holes in my theology. I find them every single week. And I'm like, dang, that wasn't consistent with this thing over here, was it? I need to go back and change that. This is one of the downsides of putting everything that I teach on the Internet <laughs> is that I'm constantly revising. Um, so that's just kind of the way it works. But, but scholars can help us understand things more clearly. They can uh, explore new areas. And they can really defend, and this is the thing that I, I like scholars for a lot, is they can help us defend the Scripture against attacks from other scholars, right? Where, oh, you know what? I have no clue how to even understand the sentence that that guy said, but I think he was being aggressive. So I need some help debating and debunking this guy's argument, and somebody else can step in and help with that. So the Scripture memory passage here is Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So chapter 7 is the four characteristics of Scripture and necessity, and we're going to kick it in high gear because my wife's looking at the clock. So. so the necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel for maintaining spiritual life and for knowing God's will, but is not necessary for knowing that God exists or knowing something about God's character or moral laws. So several different Bible passages here. The Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel. It would be very difficult to argue that you can understand how to be saved apart from the words that are in the Scripture, right? I mean, this is, this is very difficult. Matthew 4.4 4 talks about, He answered and said, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So necessary for life, absolutely, it's part of this. It's also necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This is Moses talking again. He's telling them that God hides things that he wants to hide, and he reveals it when he wants to reveal it, and that is good for us. And that timing, we just got to be okay with. And if we decide not to be okay with that timing, we're going to live a very frustrated, discontent life. And that's the reality. Uh, the blank there is, for people who are not omniscient, the Bible is necessary for certain knowledge about anything. Because if I'm omniscient, then I know all things, and I know how all things fit together. But if I'm not omniscient, and that means by default that there are things that I don't know. And if there's things that I don't know, then there's always something out there that could undo everything that I do know. So I have to trust the one that does know everything for anything that I want to know. It's just the way it works. So, um, the Bible's not necessary for knowing something about God's character or moral laws, Romans 1 and 2 and 3, and just keep reading Romans, you'll understand that whole concept. Uh, the scripture memory passage here is Matthew 4, 4, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the last one of these characteristics of scripture is sufficiency. So what we talked about last week, uh, Grudem says the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God that He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains everything we need 
God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. See, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 17, the verse that we love to skip, it says, we have all this scripture that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is sufficient. It gives us what we need so that we can do what we are supposed to do. Um, and then this idea that the amount of scripture was given was sufficient at each stage of redemptive history, your last blank here, God has always taken the initiative in revealing things to us. This is part of what he does. He is the great revealer. He reveals Jesus. He reveals himself. He reveals the Holy Spirit. He reveals his word. He reveals what he wants us to know when we need to know it. And when we live that way, we get to live Psalm 119.1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. So if we want to be blessed, if we want to be happy, if we want to understand what God does, we're supposed to be walking in the law of the Lord. And that's how this stuff all fits together. So that's eight weeks in one week. That was a lot of information, I know. Uh, so the next, the next big unit that we'll look at will be the doctrine of God himself. We'll look at that September, October, November. Then we'll look at the doctrine of man and the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in 2015. Uh, pick up with the doctrine of the application of redemption, which is just a fancy way of saying salvation, and the doctrine of the church sometime in 2016, and then way, way, way out in the future, in 2017, we'll talk about the doctrine of the future and the stuff that's going to happen way out when. So, um, yes, I'm a planner. Yes, that's where we're headed. If Jesus comes back and decides to wreck all that, that is awesome. I'm good with that. So that works for me. So that's uh, systematic theology, the first big chunk. If you wouldn't mind, please make sure that your name is on that piece of paper uh, at the bottom for attendance. And as you write down your prayer request, take a minute. Uh, pray as a group. Don't, don't skip or rush this time. This is really important. This is where we get to know each other so we lean in, engage in our lives. Uh, but if we could leave six tables and chairs up and the rest can be put up, that would be fantastic. 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 I'll, call, I'll uh, attribute that to the hydrocodone. Um, haven't had any today, so that's probably why I'm hurting right now, but that's all right. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind uh, praying for my back to get better, that would, I'll be just a bit... Uh, uh, very grateful if you would do that. So thank you guys. Appreciate you coming today. Make sure you've done, uh, uh, you've gotten a handout today or a bulletin today because there's directions for Easter at Coolidge for the parking and where to go and how to serve and all that kind of stuff. So you want to be in the right spot next week. So thanks for coming.